0: And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question, and, and you don't have to answer by raising your hands, but how many of you have ever had one of those freak-out moments, that you were freaked out? Some of you are raised, well, I said, don't raise your hand. But, so this is a weird story, but when I was in fifth grade, it was Halloween night, and my parents did something weird that year. They, they stuffed this dummy, this man on the front porch, they, they stuffed his arms and his legs with pillows and, and clothes, and they put him in overalls, and they put this ghoulish mask on his head so that when the kids came up to trick-or-treat, this, this man, this stuffed man, would kind of scare them and be kind of scary um, on Halloween night. And so my friends and I, we went off to go trick-or-treating, and when we came back to the house, I didn't think anything of it because I knew my parents had stuffed this, like, fake man on the porch. Well, little did I know that my dad got into that costume and was sitting there waiting for us. And so when I got back to the front door, my dad jumped up and yelled and he grabbed me. And I probably jumped about six feet in the air and I probably almost wet my pants, but that's another story. Um, It was a freak out moment For this little fifth grader where I was scared to death, you can imagine. I'm sure you've probably had some of those freak-out moments when you were scared half to death. Now, why do I bring out a freak-out moment where you're scared half to death? Well, because the disciples have that same experience in our text before us this morning. In the past two weeks, we've seen Jesus' encounter with these travelers on the road to Emmaus. And what have we seen happen with these travelers? Jesus has opened their minds to understand the Scripture. He, He preached the Old Testament to them. He had a fellowship meal with them. And then they run back to Jerusalem, seven miles, to go report all that they had seen To the other 11 disciples. And so we pick up this morning, and we're near the end. This is the second to last sermon in the book of Luke. We're going to finish up next Sunday. But I want us to read the final words that Jesus gives to his disciples. So let's pick up in verse 36. So if you have a copy of God's word, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 36. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. These are the last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And so I want to ask you a question. Three years ago, we started this journey together. How does the gospel of Luke begin? How did he start? Well, Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, and in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, Luke tells us why he's writing the gospel. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught, that you may be certain of what you've been taught. So for the past three years, Luke has taught us many things. And I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees this morning. And I want us to kind of conclude the Gospel of Luke here by asking a very fundamental question. I don't expect you to remember all the sermons over the past three years in the Gospel of Luke. But as we get to the end here, let's just ask a very simple question. And it's, the, it's this question. It's probably the most important question we can ask. What is the central message of the gospel, I mean, when you distill Christianity, the message of Jesus Christ, down to its fundamental essence, what is it? What is the message of the gospel? What is the message of our faith? And Jesus here in the final chapter of Luke gives us the essence, the heart of the gospel. And it is this. Here's the answer that Jesus gives us. Jesus gives you peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus gives you peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. Now, this may sound elementary. Well, that that sounds pretty like I understand that. I understand what that means. Yes, it is elementary. Yes, it is central. But let us never lose sight of the heart of the gospel. Let us never lose sight of the central message of our faith. Now, this statement assumes two things. Number one, it assumes that before you have a relationship with Christ, you don't have peace with God. That assumes you don't have peace with God and you need peace with God. It assumes something else. It assumes you need to have your sins forgiven. Most people do not wake up thinking that they are at war with God and they need to have their sins forgiven. But those two assumptions are fundamental to Christianity. You need peace with God and you need your sins forgiven. And so as we come to this passage of Scripture, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's the risen Christ. He appears to his disciples. They freak out. They are startled. He just appears before them. They're skeptical. They're doubting. And Jesus gives two convincing proofs of his resurrection. The first proof is he says, see. See with your eyes. See the scars in my hands and feet and touch me i am flesh and blood i'm the risen christ i have a resurrected body see and touch with your own eyes and notice what he says there he says in verse 39 see my hands and my feet that it is i myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see i have it's my it's me It's a very emphatic, in the original language, it's very emphatic. Jesus is saying, it is me. It it is I. It is me. It's not a ghost. I am literally right here before you. Touch and see with your own eyes and with your own hands. This same Jesus who just days before was crucified on a cross, bearing God's wrath, is now the resurrected Christ. So number one, he says, touch me. See with your own eyes. But the other convincing proof is he says, hey, I'm going to have a piece of fish. I'm going to eat some broiled fish. A ghost does not eat. So Jesus physically eats broiled fish as a way to show that he is truly the resurrected Christ, that he is real. He's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. He's not a spirit. He is literally Christ raised in the glorified body. Now, from the last words of Jesus here, he gives us three blessings, three truths that are central to the message of Christianity. So Luke tells us, I want you to be certain of what you've been taught. We've been taught for three years now. We get to the end here. What are the three key truths of our faith? Well, they all start with the letter G, and you're going to have to wait until we get there, H G. And this is not anything new with me, This is historically how the Christian church has understood the message of the gospel with these three words that start with G. And here's the first. Jesus removes your guilt by giving you peace with God. The first first word is guilt. The first word of the gospel is guilt. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus says when he shows up to them. Look at it with your own eyes in verse 36. What does Jesus say? As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Now it's important. Sometimes we just kind of overlook these little statements that Jesus says. It's not as if Jesus is saying, Hey guys, here I am. No, he's very specific in what he says. Why are the first words of Jesus to his disciples after his resurrection? Peace to you. Why peace? Jesus knows something very important. He knows what's going on in these guys' hearts. He knows they're doubting. He knows they're freaked out. He knows what they need. They need peace. But let me just remind you that every single one of us is born into this world guilty. And we don't have peace with God. Because of our sins. We need to have peace with God. That's our greatest need, to have peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus says, peace to you. These Jewish men would have understood that concept of shalom that you find in the Old Testament. To to, to a Jewish follower that understood their, their Old Testament, having peace with God was the greatest good. This shalom, as the Old Testament refers to it. Leon Morris, the Australian commentator, gives us great definition of shalom. I like the way he defines shalom or peace. He says it stands for spiritual well-being at the highest level. A prosperity of soul resulting from being in a right relationship with God. Not just a feeling of calm, but the life confidence of reconciliation with God. Do you have the confidence that you are at peace with your creator? This shalom. This peace that Jesus announces to these men that was promised in the Old Testament in the ironic blessing that oftentimes we may end a worship service with. The greatest words that an Israelite could hear from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Psalm twenty-nine eleven: May the Lord... Give strength to his people, may the Lord bless his people with peace. It's not just a subjective feeling. It's not like the eagle is a peaceful, easy feeling, although sometimes Jesus does give us that. It is an objective peace with God that results in forgiveness of sins in a right standing with God. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our having faith in Him, we have an objective, bona fide peace with God that's based upon the blood. Of Christ. And what it assumes is that before that you were not at peace with God. You were guilty. You were at war. As Dustin even reminded us of his testimony, we were enemies of God. The key word here is guilt. We stood guilty and condemned before God as his enemy. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 5, verse 10: For while if, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. It says we, we were enemies. Most people don't wake up every day thinking they're an enemy of God, that they're at war with God but they need to have peace with God. But the Bible's very clear. Everyone without Christ stands guilty as God's enemy. And your greatest need is to have peace with God. Ephesians 2, 13-14, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Notice, Jesus himself is our peace. And how does that peace come? By the blood of Christ. So your greatest problem is guilt, and your greatest need is peace with God. And the heart of the Christian message is you can have peace with God and your guilt taken away. Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, let them not be afraid. So the first big G word of the message of the gospel is guilt. And we need peace with God because we are guilty. Now, how does that peace come about? I've I've already alluded to it. Well, the second G word is grace. So here's the second truth that Jesus gives us. Jesus gives you grace through the forgiveness of sins. So guilt, we are guilty. Jesus answers our guilt by the second G word, grace. Now, where do we see forgiveness of sins? Well, we see it in verse 47. When Jesus commissions his disciples with the message that they are to share, he says in verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. This forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all people everywhere. As we sang earlier, he reigns. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people need to understand they can have their sins forgiven. Through Christ. He can completely wipe away all your sins, past, present, and future. Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your heart our flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, not some of them, but all of them, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So you are guilty and you need peace with God. How does God answer your guilt? He answers your guilt with grace through the forgiveness of sins. But this forgiveness is not automatic. You must believe in Jesus. You must trust in Him. And there are some things here that Jesus says you must believe. And so in verses 44 and 47, Jesus gives us The substance of the Bible. The substance of the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now that's the entirety of the Old Testament because the New Testament had not been written at this point. But but the the, the prophets, the Psalms, the law of Moses, that's the entirety of the, the written Bible at that time. And so Jesus is saying, you must believe the truth about what the Bible says about Jesus. The Bible is very clear about who Jesus is, and we must understand this truth. And notice again, it says there that Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Third time we've seen this concept of Jesus doing this amazing work with the Scriptures. In verse 27, you go back, he interpreted the Scriptures to them. Verse 32, their hearts burned within them as he opened their minds to the scriptures. And here for the third time, Jesus is opening their minds to the scriptures. And so this what Jesus is doing here is he's explaining. He's expositing. He's interpreting. He's teaching the Bible, the Old Testament, to these men. As a matter of fact, Luke uses the same word here. For what Paul does when Paul goes to, to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. In Acts 17, 2-3, As Paul went in, as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining, that's the same word used here, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. What do you and I need to have happen? We need to have our hearts and our minds open to the Scriptures the way Jesus does to these men here. Now, it's interesting in the book of Acts, Luke, who also records here, talks about a woman whose heart was opened. Now, here Jesus opens their minds In Luke, the Holy Spirit opens this woman's heart. So in Acts 16, 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened, that's the same Greek word that's used here, the Lord opened, but this time not her mind, but her heart. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So here's the, here's the issue. Every single one of us needs to have our hearts and our minds opened to the truth of the Scriptures. Now, you ask the question, why do we need to have this happen to us? You can't open your heart. You can't open your mind. It has to be done to you supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, Paul gives us the answer in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The natural person is an unsaved person, a lost person, a person that doesn't have Jesus in their life. They don't understand truth. They don't understand the things of the Spirit. Without Jesus, you are spiritually dead in your sins and you need this supernatural opening of your heart and your mind to understand truth. And when that happens, when the Holy Spirit does that, there are some things you must believe about Jesus that Jesus tells us right here. We see this very clearly in verses 46 and 47. So what are these things that you must believe? What's the sum and substance of the gospel? Well, you must believe that Jesus is the one and only way. What does Jesus say about himself there in verse 46? He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Christ should suffer. That word is Messiah, the anointed king, the only way of salvation, our Lord Jesus, the Christ. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me you got to believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. There's no other way. Well, what else do you need to believe? What else is the sum and substance of our gospel message? Well, Jesus says here, you must believe that Jesus suffered on the cross. He says there in verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. Now, that's where we get the word passion, the passion of the Christ. A lot of people don't understand. The passion of the Christ is not talking about Jesus' passion and going to the Christ, his emotion. The word passion comes from the Latin word paschal or pacho, which means to suffer. So when we talk about the passion of the Christ, we're talking about the suffering, the, the physical anguish that Jesus experienced on the cross and the spiritual suffering by taking God's wrath in our place where Jesus was rejected, where he was forsaken, where he was treated as the vilest of sinners taking our sin. 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered. There's that Greek word, suffered, pasho, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. So Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's the Christ. He suffered on the cross. What else do you need to believe? you need to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. What does Jesus tell us here? Verse 46, He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, should suffer on the cross and on the third day rise from the dead. You must believe the resurrection. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Our, our faith is meaningless. So at its heart... Again, let's not lose the forest for the trees. Let's get to the very heart of things here. At the very end of Luke, Jesus gets us to the heart. You must believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and at its essence, you must believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the, that's the central message. And Jesus is bringing us to a, to a laser-sharp close at the, book of, at the end of the book of Luke. But there's another aspect here that Jesus includes. Did you notice it? Let's look at verse 46 and 47. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Repentance. You must repent of your sins. Paul is preaching at Mars Hill a bunch of ungodly people that are worshiping a false god, the unknown god. And Paul says, the times of ignorance God is overlooked, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You must repent. Now let's ask the question, what's repentance? The Greek word, if you look at, there's, there's really two Greek words, and if you go back to the Old Testament look at some Hebrew words, the overall idea is this. It is an inward change of mind. It's a change of thought. You begin to change your understanding of who you are and who God is. And this is a gift of God giving to you this inward change. And so really it's an inward change of heart that leads to an outward profession of faith. Thomas Watson's probably got the best definition I've come across in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance. He says, Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. You're inwardly humbled, which leads to visible reformation, a change of life. Martin Luther gives a great illustration about repentance. He says this, In repentance, there must be a deep hurt. If the old man is to be put off. When lightning strikes a tree or a man, it does two things at once. It rends the tree and swiftly slays the man. But it also turns the face of the dead man and the broken branches of the tree itself toward heaven. Martin Luther fashion. What's he saying? When God's law comes to you and conviction of sin comes to you, you, when you repent, you're knocked down like lightning splitting a tree in half and you fall on your back. But as you fall on your back, what are you doing? You're looking upwards at heaven, realizing that's your only hope. Your only hope is in Jesus. So repentance is an acute awareness of sin, like being struck by lightning. And I read this earlier in our time of confession, but let me just read it again. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Forsake your ways... Your actions forsake your thoughts, your desires. So, so repentance is not just repenting of outward actions. Repentance is also repenting from the desires and the lust and the, and the attitudes and, and desires of your heart that are ungodly. And again, the Lord will abundantly pardon. Psalm one hundred three twelve: As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. So, Jesus is telling us the central message of the gospel. We've heard it from the lips of Jesus. You can have peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. And I've told you there's three G words, right? So It starts with guilt. You are guilty before a holy God. You need peace with God. How does God answer that? With grace. Through the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And when you trust in Jesus and you repent of your sins, you are forgiven. But there's a third G. Gratitude. Here's the third truth. Guilt removed through grace leads to gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Now, how do you see gratitude in this passage of Scripture? This has always confused me. Verse 41. I still don't quite understand it, but it's in the Scriptures. I'm going to do my best to try to explain it. Verse 41. While they still disbelieve for joy and were marveling. That's always caught me off guard. They disbelieve for joy. Their joy was causing them not to believe. Or they were believing, it was hard for them to believe because they were wrapped up in so much joy. I I don't know exactly what it means, but here's my best illustration. You've seen those commercials, those publisher clearinghouse commercials? Where they show up at a person's house unexpected and they got the camera and they knock on the door and they got that big thing, you've won $10 million. And the person's like, what? Ah!" They, they can't even be, begin to believe what's happening. Is this really happening? Is this a joke? And, and they're like overwhelmed with joy, like they can't believe it. I think that's what Luke is describing here. These disciples are like, I don't even, I don't, I don't understand what's going on, but this is amazing. I can't explain it. I don't even know if I believe it, but I'm so joy. There's Jesus right in front of me. They disbelieved for joy. Jesus gives you, when Jesus saves you, he gives you joy. That leads to gratitude for what he's done for you. Now, what is joy? Here's Pastor Sean's definition. It's not inspired. It's just something I thought about over the years. Joy is that deep seated sense of contentment, peace, security, regardless of your circumstances, where you trust in the absolute sovereignty of God to take care of you. It's not your circumstances. You can have really bad circumstances, and God still give you joy because it's in His sovereignty and His goodness deep in your heart. That's why Nehemiah 8.10 says, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt removed by giving you a permanent peace. Grace imparted to you by giving you permanent forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus gives you a permanent joy so that you can live a life of gratitude. So, the ultimate question for you this morning is Do you have peace with God through your guilt being removed? Do you have peace with God? Do you know that? Do you have grace by knowing that your sins have been forgiven? And if that's true do you live a life of gratitude? This is the essence of the Christian faith. It's the heart of the gospel, these three words, guilt, grace, gratitude. And are you like the disciples? Are you are you marveling? Are you joyful? JC Ryla said this. The happiest Christian. And when somebody says the happiest Christian, you got to stand up and say what's the happiest Christian? The happiest Christian is the one who has the most heart-searching sense of his own sinfulness and the liveliest sense of his own complete acceptance in Christ. You're a happy Christian if you understand how guilty you were and how God gave you grace and then you live in gratitude. He says that's the happiest Christian. So here's my prayer for us. We'd all leave here today as happy Christians. Now, not happy in the sense that, you know what I mean, joyful. Joyful Christian. We had this joy in our heart because we've had our sins forgiven through forgiveness that comes in Jesus. And we stand here today, utterly, completely, absolutely, totally forgiven and have peace with God. Our guilt has been overcome. We've experienced grace overwhelming, and we respond with gratitude overflowing, all because of Jesus. So would you bow your heads this morning and let's praise Him for overcoming our guilt with His grace and let us be a people of gratitude. Would you spend just a few moments in prayer going to your Savior this morning? Father, we know that we are guilty sinners who deserve nothing but wrath and hell because we stand condemned as enemies of you. And instead of trying to come up with a plan, Lord, for us to save ourselves, which we never could, you in your grace sent Jesus to be the forgiveness of our sins, to die on the cross, to rise again, that we might have forgiveness, complete forgiveness of sins. We could have peace with God, our guilt overcome through grace. And Lord, as we've experienced this, Lord, help us to live lives of gratitude. Help us live lives of joy. Help us to be so thankful that you have saved us by grace alone. Let our lives just be one big thank you. Not to earn our salvation, Lord Jesus, but just to say thank you for our salvation. Lord, we want to leave this place the happiest Christians. And Lord, we know what that means. Just joy in our hearts because our guilt's been removed by grace and we live a life of gratitude. Help us not to lose the forest for the trees. There's so many things, Lord, that we can focus on, but Lord, this is is the essence of our faith. This is the central theme. This is the heart of the gospel. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Help us to remember those three words this week and live in the joy of your salvation, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. If you are here this morning,